Well, if you would open up to Mark chapter 10, we are continuing our journey in, in Mark. Mark chapter 10 will be in verses 17 through 31 today, and we're going to jump right into the text today as we have a lot to cover. And some of this, if you spend any time in church, some of this will sound familiar to you, but I pray and have been praying that we will all wrestle with the deeper questions that lie at the heart of what transpires in this passage in chapter 10. So here's what I want to ask before we read the text today. Here's what I want to ask is, as you see the story of this man who interacts with Jesus, that we not compare distances. Don't ask yourself, how am I not like this man? But instead ask yourself, how am I more like this man than I think? So open, if you would, to Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 17. It says, and he was setting out on his journey. A man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one that has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So again, Jesus and his disciples, they're on the move. Closer and closer to Jerusalem, they travel to where Christ will set his face like flint to Calvary. At the outset of their trip, we see in the text, the text says, a man ran up and knelt before him. Two quick things I want us to see. If this man is of any importance among the Jewish community, uh, which we'll see uh, if you parallel this with Matthew's account and Luke's account, it says that he is, he should not be running because if you ran in that day, you would have to kind of pick up your garments and show your legs. So someone of his stature would not be running because they would be showing their legs and certainly not kneeling before anyone. This would show that they had great respect for this person. So this, right off the bat in this text, we see something happening with this man that any Jewish person would have been like, whoa, this, this guy really respects Jesus. He is desperately seeking something from Jesus. But pay close attention to this man's phrasing. He says, good teacher, what 
must I do? If you underline, if you write in your Bible, underline that. What must I do to inherit eternal life? First, he calls Jesus good teacher. And we know, if you've been with us any time, that Peter has already said that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christos, the Christ, the one who has come to save his people from their sins. So he is more than just a good teacher. But there is some respect for Jesus here from this man. He knows that at the very least, he can get some good advice on how to obtain eternal life. He wants to take possession of something, something that he does not seem to own yet. And we'll see why in verse 22. Verse 18, Jesus contrasts his approach with a question and an answer. Jesus asks a question and he answers it himself. And it's all based on the word good, G-O-O-D. And Jesus is not saying that he's not good, that Jesus isn't good. He's pulling at a larger thread with his answer. He's saying, this is simply what Jesus is saying. If you're calling me good, you're calling me God, right? If you're calling me good, you're calling me God. Because those in the Jewish tradition, they would not understand the word good as a relative word. An example, he's a good guy, she's a good teacher, and that's a good restaurant. That's kind of how we use the word good. For someone to be good equals them being God. Goodness, according to their traditions, was absolute, not relative, the way we use the word. How do you know something is bad? You compare it to something good. And when we think about it in, in, in context of Christianity, how do we know we're sinful? We look upon the perfect Son of God who is altogether lovely, altogether holy, and absolutely good. That's how we know that we're sinful. Look at verse 19. And watch what Jesus does as he continues to dismantle this man's understanding of what he's asking Jesus for. Remember, he's asking Jesus how to inherit eternal life. Jesus reminds him of the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words. But he begins with the commandments that are horizontal. Remember, if you, if you were with us for any time, we went through the Ten Commandments at one point in the life of our church. The first four affect your relationship with God. The last six affect your relationship with humanity. Those are horizontal commandments. And the, the question is why? Why does Jesus start there? This is why. Pay attention to this. Because he's already broken the first one. He's already broken the first commandment. If you know it, it's you shall have no other what? No other gods before me, the Lord God says. And his response in verse 22 will make that clear. In verse 20, the rich man continues and says, he's done a pretty good job at keeping those. He says, I've, keep, I've kept all these from my youth, basically saying that he's sinless. That's what this man is saying. I've kept all these from my youth. And remember, this is a young man. So he's probably 27, 28 years old which feels pretty young to me as a 42-year-old. Feels pretty young. And think about his response. 
He's saying, listen church, he's saying that he's just as good as God. He's comparing himself to the Lord God Almighty. I've kept these from my youth. That is some courage and some certainty. In verse 21, watch how Jesus responds to this young man's absurd claim. He does not look at him and shame him. He does not look at him and just disgusted by him. What does the text say? It says, he looks at him and loves him. He loves this man. This is not a quick glance, but a deep and revealing look upon this man, and it stirs Jesus' affections for him. He has compassion as he peers into his soul. And then what Jesus says next, it seems a little anti-gospel, okay? But you gotta remember, we're talking about the Son of God here. He gives the man something to do. We know that eternal life is a gift, just like Brody just read, eternal life is a gift and it cannot be earned or inherited in any way. Listen, church, it does not matter what family you grow up in. It does not matter that your parents attended church all their lives. That was my story. My dad was a pastor. My mom is a really incredible woman and she served faithfully alongside my dad for many years as a pastor. I was convinced that God would let me in on their good works until I was met with the holiness of God that each person, past, present, and future, will give an account for their lives. My parents would not give an account for my life. I would stand before God Almighty and have to give an account for my own life. You cannot inherit it in any way. Jesus knew this man had great wealth and he had stature. So he goes right for the jugular and he tells them, all you need to do is sell all that you have and give all that money that you make off selling it, give, gift it to the poor and poof, you have treasure in heaven. Oh yeah, lastly, come follow me. Sell it all, give all that money away to the poor, and after you've done that, come and follow me as a disciple, Jesus says. This, this should create some kind of a reminder for us. Lose it all, and you will gain, gain what you've been wanting. Look at verse 22. This is the response. This is the answer the man gives. He can't. He can't do it. The Bible says he's disheartened, and this word in the Greek is he's grieved. Have you ever been grieved before? To receive news that someone you loved has passed? In that moment, you're not just sad, you are grieved, and grief continues. It's a journey. The Bible says that he's disheartened, he's grieved, he's punched in the gut with what Jesus says, but why? The question is why? This is why. This man is a slave to his possessions and his power. The rich young man hangs his head. He doesn't even have to say a word. The Bible says he doesn't say a word after this in, in, a, in Mark's account. He's dejected and sulking departure says it all. The man doesn't even have to say anything. He hangs his head grieved because this man had great wealth, verse 22 says. 
This man had youth, he had wealth, he had power. But listen, church, look at me for just a moment. Truly, those things had him. Those things owned him. What he thought he was, he was enslaved to. This man, his identity was in his stature, in his power, in his wealth, in the fact that he had made his millions at an early age. I just need this one thing. I've got the yacht. I've got the house. I've probably got the wife. Whatever. I'm just assuming there. I've got it all, Jesus. I'm an influencer among my community. I've got it all. But really, it had him. The story transitions in verses 23 to 27. And as this man is walking away from Jesus' call to die and really find life, Mark uses the word again, looked. Jesus looked. As Jesus speaks to his disciples about the difficulty of trying to enter the kingdom for those who have great wealth. Listen, he doesn't say it's impossible. He says how difficult it is for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 20, 24, and he expands in a few verses on why. But first, it says the disciples are amazed at what Jesus is saying. And again, the question is why? Why are the disciples responding this way? This is why. Because great wealth in that day was seen as a sign of God's blessing in their culture. So this would have continued to turn their worldview upside down. Did you know that the middle class, is, uh, is, it's, that's a pretty modern thing to happen. In this day, you were either rich or you were poor. There was no in between. So to have great wealth would have been seen as a blessing from God. And Jesus repeats himself this, but this time he uses the word children, how difficult it will be. He uses it at the beginning of his phrasing because it's, it's a term of endearment. He is pulling his disciples in and he's loving them as babies. If you were with us last week, we just covered four verses in chapter 10 where Jesus holds this precious infant and he says, this is how we should receive the kingdom of God helpless. Jesus pulls them in here, and he says, children, how difficult it will be for the rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Then in verse 25, we see the why. And Jesus comes with this quick-hitting parable about the camel and the eye of a needle. I want you to read this. Verse 25, I want to read this together with, with you says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And some scholars think that Jesus was speaking of this small opening in the wall of Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. That if all the other gates were closed around Jer Jerusalem, a, a traveler who had his camel could come and have his camel bow and walk through this eye of a needle, this small opening in the wall of Jerusalem. But Jesus is using hyperbole here and a little bit of sarcasm. Do you know Jesus was sarcastic? But he was not sarcastic like you and I are. We're usually sarcastic because we're being cynical. 
Jesus used sarcasm the right way. And here he's saying that it, how difficult it is for a rich person. That it's, it's like trying to fit this massive animal through the eye of a needle. That is impossible. You trying to earn your way into heaven is like trying to pass this massive animal through the eye of a needle. The eye of a needle is big enough for a small thread, and even that takes work. How in the world would a massive animal fit through that? And this continues to press on the fact that we cannot trust in our works to save us. It is impossible to save ourselves. Just like this made-up scenario that Jesus has here, he says it's impossible. It's impossible for it to happen. In verse 26, the disciples respond accordingly to Jesus' parable. It says they were exceedingly astonished. Listen, if Jesus was talking about this small opening in the wall of Jerusalem, they would have been like, ah, yeah, I, I can see that. But the Bible says they were exceedingly astonished at Jesus' parable. And they're only left with a question about who can be saved or who can inherit, take possession of, or earn eternal life. Those, those are the questions they're left with. Verse 27, again it says, Jesus looks at them and he quotes the Old, the Old Testament. One place being Jeremiah 32, 27. Turn there if you would. It's in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 32, 27, one of the major prophets. Listen to, listen to this. It says, Behold, I am the Lord, or Yahweh, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Jesus here is quoting the Old Testament. He's saying, those things that are impossible for you, those are possible for God. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Listen, if, I want you to be encouraged this morning because this text is kind of like, it's one of those hard sayings of Jesus. And just this, if, if you want to pull anything out of context, pull this verse out of context. Anything that you might be experiencing in your life, have you spent time praying and asking the Lord and searching, seeking, asking, knocking, and saying, Lord, is anything too hard for you? You know what the response you're going to get is? Jeremiah 32, 27. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. But here we see it in context of this conversation that he has with this rich young man and his disciples. He says, those things that you think are impossible, for God, all things are possible. And he's not saying here that, that richness damns you to hell forever. He's saying how difficult it is for, for us to try to earn our salvation, for us to try to take possession of it. He says, but God, God is the only one who can overcome a heart that is gripped by wealth or their, by their possessions. Did you know, church, if you think about it in context of our, uh, the global landscape, we are among the 1%. We have so much at our fingertips. 
We have clean running water when we go to our house. We have toilet paper to use. We can go to the doctor when we need to. But how often do we thank God for those things? And how often are we asking God for more? Compare your prayers. This is true for me too. How much time do I spend asking God for more and not thanking him for what he's already given me? And some days those are hard. Some days all I can say is, God, thank you that I'm breathing. By your mercy, you're telling my lungs to breathe in and breathe out and my heart to pump and the blood to course through my veins. How thankful are we for those things when we can find nothing else to be thankful for? And those two words, impossible and possible, that Jesus uses, in the Greek, they're key and they will convey a finality to the quest for saving ourselves. Listen, church, it is only God who can save the repentant sinner, and only the repentant sinner can be saved by God. Did you hear that? If you're a note taker, note that. It is only God who can save the repentant sinner, and only the repentant sinner can be saved by God. 1 Timothy 1.15, I love the way the Apostle Paul says this here, and he speaks of himself. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel, clearly, of whom... Paul says, I am the foremost. Paul says, I I, I recognize how sinful my heart is. The closer I, I, I get to Jesus, the more sinful, like I see my sin. I see my sinfulness. Paul says here, Jesus Christ came to the world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. Do we understand how truly incapable we are of saving ourselves? Ask yourself honestly, if you think of your own salvation story, was it, was it something that you did to earn your salvation? Was it the decision that you made that helped God save you? Did you get up one morning and you're like, I think I'm gonna accept Jesus Christ into my heart. And God's like, finally, I've been hoping this guy would come to me. Was it your baptism? Was it a class that you took? Was it because you spent so much time reading the Bible, you're like, okay, God, I read from Genesis to Revelation, now I think I'm saved. Was it something that you did? Were you impressive beforehand? And how do you reconcile any of that with the fact that Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our sins and trespasses? Was there anything a dead man can do? One of the reasons Jesus responds and he mentions the law of Moses is to remind this man that the law demands perfection of which we could never attain. How many of you can honestly say that you've kept the first commandment perfectly for a day, for an hour, for a minute, for a second, that you've truly kept God as as the supreme ruler in your life for even a second. This is, listen church, 
This is why we need the whole life of Jesus in our stead. The one who gave the law gave his son to meet the demands of the law. Think for just a moment and and tell me what other religion preaches that? Every other religion says work and work and work and maybe you'll get in. Christianity is the only one that secures a place in the kingdom. To who? To the repentant sinner. To the one who comes and says, I can't save myself. I need salvation. I need the Lord Jesus Christ to wash away my sins. I need a new heart. I need a new nature. I need to be loved by you because I'm trying to love the things of this world. We need his whole life. We need his death. We need his resurrection. We need his ascension. And we need the promise of his return. We need it all. Listen, church, yes, the law of God is good, and we should strive to keep it. It should be a, a, a natural overflow. Obedience should be a natural overflow in response to God's grace. But keeping the law will never save us. John Bunyan, the 17th century Puritan writer, says this. He says, run, John, run, the law commands but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Let's look at the last four verses, 28 through 31. It's obvious that Peter, he's still having a hard time understanding as he compares distances with what he begins to say to Jesus. He says, Jesus, that guy couldn't do it, but we did. We walked away from it all. Did you see that, Jesus? Did you see what we're doing? Did you see what we've done? Did you see what we've given up? And Jesus interrupts Peter to reveal the human heart with his response. Peter says, we did it, Jesus. We've done what you've said. And Jesus simply says here, Peter, it's not enough. It will never be enough. Listen, church, look at me for just a moment. The vice grip we have on the things of this world are deadly. It is deadly. The way we spend our money, the way we save our money, it should be telling of this. Even if you're here and you say, but I give a lot of money to the church, Ricky, and and I'm wise with my money. It very quickly becomes about what you have done and not a humble response to what God has given. Quit trying to prove something to God by your works. Listen, the only, if you are in Christ, the only reason you're impressive is because of Christ. Because the Father sees you as he sees his impressive son who met the demands of the law with his perfect life. It is nothing that you've done and it's still nothing that you do. Nothing that you do keeps you in. Nothing. Quit trying to prove something to God by what you do. The last two verses, verses 30 and 31. These last two verses, they're not saying that if you give up your possessions, you get a reward in heaven. That's called the poverty gospel. We have the prosperity gospel, which I abhor. And then we have the poverty gospel. 
saying the prosperity gospel says that if you follow Jesus, he's going to give you everything that you've ever wanted. The poverty gospel says if you give everything up, then Jesus will give you a place in the kingdom. You see how these are opposite of the true gospel? Jesus says, you, you can't truly give it up. So give up. It, it's got a vice grip on your heart. It's got a vice grip on your mind. Give up. Give up trying to earn it. Give up trying to keep your place. And, and I don't want you to walk away here saying, well, Ricky just said, my pastor just told me, I can live however I want. It's not what that is. We live in response to the amazing grace of God. That's a life of obedience. That's living a life of holiness. That's living in response to the gospel. So it press, this presses on a deeper question. Do you trust in your possessions? Do you trust in your works? Do you trust in your own goodness more than you trust in Christ? Is Christ himself your treasure or is he just an add-on to this life? Does he simply offer you your best life now or are you willing to forsake it all for him and the gospel? Are you willing? That's the question. Church, are we willing to walk away from it and say, I'm going to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter what this world asks of me, I'm going to love him above all things. Are we willing? Are we willing? Thomas Aquinas, the 13th century philosopher and theologian, he was quoted as saying, people are seeking things that only God can give him. People are seeking things that only God can give them. This leaves us with a question, and we've asked this and will continue to ask this. Do we want God's stuff more than we want Him? And here's a way to diagnose this. Listen, if we truly acknowledge that all we have belongs to Him, what is our response if He took it all away? What's your response if, if God, for some reason, took everything you had away, including your health? Listen, are you only at peace? Are you only at peace when your bank account is full? When all your bills are paid? This has to press on us this way. Are we willing to forsake it all? And I'm not telling you to be foolish, but I am telling you to be foolish for the sake of the gospel. Because this world will look at, a, look at us like we're fools. This world will look at us like we're fools. As I end our time, I want to remind, I want to, I'm sorry, I want to rewind this whole thing and look at the, at the very first verse that we looked at, verse 17. This rich young man, he asks a pointed question to Jesus. He says, what must I do? And that launches us into the rest of this passage. But we need to remember what it says in Mark 8.31. I think we'll have it up on the screen for you. Mark 8.31. Listen to this. Pay attention to one word. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man, what? Must. Must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days 
rise again. Listen, I'm going to be a little cheesy here because I'm going I'm to rhyme some things. I, I didn't do that on purpose. The gospel meets our must with the must of Christ. Because our must will never be enough, let us trust in the must of the Messiah. Let us trust in the must of the Messiah. Stop, forsake this way of life where you're coming to the Lord Jesus and saying, what must I do when he's already met the must with his, with his good news? I'm going to go ahead and invite the band to come up. Listen, we try our best to make a plea every week. We make two invitations. If you're here this morning and you aren't honestly sure if you're a Christian or not, we want to leave the invitation open to you. Come to Christ. Repent of your sin. But my warning is this. Are you simply coming to God for his stuff? Are you simply coming to God because, oh, well, my granny, you know, a few years ago she passed away and I want to see her in heaven so bad. Listen, my dad passed a few years ago. I love my dad and I look forward to seeing him in heaven one day. But way more than that, I look forward to seeing my creator face to face. And I, I am hopeful that my dad gets to introduce me to him. That, yes, let, let's, let's long for that. Like we sang just a few minutes ago, we sang about our welcoming that day. But listen, are you only coming to God for his stuff and not to be satisfied by him? Come to Christ, repent of your sin. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ for he's the only one who can save you by his perfect life, by his substitutionary death, his resurrection. And if you are in Christ this morning, this is the second invitation. If you are in Christ, listen, Jesus is the true and better rich young man. Jesus is the true and better rich young man. Why? Because he didn't walk away grieved. Philippians chapter 2 says that he humbled himself. He humbled himself. And he came, and John chapter 1 says, he moved into our neighborhood. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that he landed among rebels to save them. Jesus is the true and better rich young man. Where this man failed, the Lord Jesus succeeded. See how the Bible presses on us here and reminds us and points us to the true and better king where we find satisfaction. I'm going to be in the back of the room. If you need prayer, if you need counsel, if you just need some questions answered, whatever it would be, come back there. I'll pray with you. I'll counsel you. I'll, I'll try to walk you through what's happening. But if you're being crushed under the weight of your sin, repent. My ask is repent. How do we repent? We turn from it and we stop acting that way. Let's pray.